0: This is Jocko podcast number 305 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Also joining us again tonight, Dave Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. We are going to continue the review of the book, The Psychology of Military Incompetence, which we started on podcast 303, continued with 304. We're gonna continue it more now. And we got through some examples in the last podcast, some of the wartime examples. We'll get through the rest of these examples tonight. And this is a big setup. <laughs> this is a this is an arduous setup for part two of the book. I don't know if we'll get into part two of the book tonight, which actually starts to dive into the psychology of military incompetence. But like I said before, those explorations continuously refer back to the examples from the beginning, part one of this book, which is what makes the book powerful, because it's not just theory. It gives you examples that connects the theory to reality. So that's what we're doing. Um, if you haven't ordered this book, order it. It's called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence, written by Dr. Dixon who is a combat vet himself. If you haven't listened to podcast 303 and 304 yet, you can go back and listen to those first. We're going through these military examples and we're starting, to, you can see him starting to tune in, starting to call out some of these psychological pathology that ends up with bad leadership. And with that, we're going to go into the book. This chapter is called Between Wars. So we end we end World War 1. And this chapter is called "Between the Wars" because what should be happening between the wars? What should we be doing? We should be assessing what we did wrong, assessing what we did right, seeing what improvements we could make, seeing what new technology we could bring to bear. And let's face it: you fight a war like World War One, and there should be an insane amount of lessons learned. Unfortunately, this quote starts off with um, this book. This chapter starts off with a quote from George Bernard Shaw. And he says, the British soldier can stand up to anything except the British War Office. What a horrible statement that is. <clears throat> Go into the book. Military stock is never lower than at the end of a costly war. With a million dead, society's appetite for aggression has been assuaged. People were weary of the war and tired of soldiering. For the military, the truth was rubbed in by swinging cuts in men and materiel. We're done. World War I's done, you only think about being over it, they're over it. From being the most important members of the community, they were now relegated to a very minor role, that's the military, this thinly veiled ingratitude had three effects upon the military. With the hoarse yet self-consoling cry, now we can get back to some real soldiering. They withdrew into cocoons of professional Impotence. Isn't that strange? You get done with the war, you say, all right, now we can get back to soldiering. Which for them, what does that mean? In accordance with the principle that more florid aspects of militarism are defenses against threat to self esteem, there was a falling back upon the rights of the barrack square. Renewed attention to spit and polish helped to expunge the last traces of the mud of Flanders at higher levels of military hierarchy. Service thinking was now embodied in an extract from a paper on Imperial Defense dated June 22nd, 1926. Quote: The size of the forces of the crown maintained by Great Britain is governed by various conditions peculiar to each service and is not arrived at by any calculations of the requirements of foreign policy, nor is it possible that they should ever be so calculated. (laughs) <laughs> that's the most insane thing I've read in quite some time. Well, I guess since I read the last chapter of this book. <laughs> hey, we're just going to the the, the – we're building our military. The size of our military is just based on kind of what they think it should be. It had nothing to do with what's going on in foreign policy. No calculations. That's not what we're doing. In the period between the wars, the shape and the equipment – if not the size of the armed forces, were partly determined by a number of curious military attitudes. These centered peculiar, peculiar, particularly around three instruments of warfare, tanks, planes, and horses. Describing a tank attack which he had witnessed in 1916, General Sir Richard Gale tells how the British command tried to exploit it with cavalry. Apparently they failed as it was borne out by the grim sight of riderless horses returning whence they had come. Man, that's an eerie image, isn't it? Of this experience, he writes I was impressed by the potential of the tank as I was unimpressed by the employment of horsed cavalry in modern warfare conditions. Yet, after all our experience in that war, it took us further 20 years to mechanize our cavalry. The lesson was clear with the lesson was as clear in 1916 as in 1936. In truth it was not 1936 but 1941 before the British began to implement lessons of 1916. (laughs) What happened between these wars Shows the alarming extent to which reactionary elements can draw the wrong conclusion from what to most people would seem quite unambiguous facts. Rather than recognize the potential of the tank, they drew the conclusion that innovation and progress are inherently dangerous and therefore to be eschewed. The symptom is not without precedent, nor confined to the Army. While on naval maneuvers in 1893, Admiral Tryon wished to about face two parallel columns of battleships from his flagship, he ordered that the two columns should reverse course by turning inwards. Unfortunately, the combined turning radius of the ships was greater than the distance between them. With mathematical inevitability, HMS Victoria was rammed by HMS Camperdown and sank with great loss of life. Other officers had seen what was going to happen, but dared not question. The lesson from this disaster seemed fairly clear. Admirals should base their decisions upon information supplied by their staffs, and junior officers should not be afraid of speaking up when their knowledge, for example, the turning turning circles of naval craft, and their special abilities, for example, superior eyesight and greater capacity for mental arithmetic, led them to believe that a given order would end in calamity. The argument seems sound enough. Indeed, even the most junior char lady, which is a cleaning woman, at the Admiralty, had she pondered the facts, could hardly have failed to draw the same conclusion. But this was not the conclusion reached by her lords and masters. For them, Tryon's lapse just went to show that it never pays to try anything new. There was the lesson learned. Don't do inward, don't do, that's the lesson learned. Don't do inward t- turns in a column. To return to the tank, the successive chiefs of the Imperial General Staff between 1918 and 1939 with the support of other senior officers did not exert themselves to mechanize the army. Some were actively obstructionist. Against these reactionary elements stood a handful of progressive army officers and a few like-minded civilians. The progressives who had assimilated the incontrovertible evidence from the preceding war with Germany and were only too well aware of Hitler's preparations for the next made their views known through books, essays, lectures, and by word of mouth. These moves were countered by the military establishment in two ways. So you got this whole group of people that are saying, hey, bro and bros, we need to make tanks, a lot of them. We need to mechanize our cavalry. Look what happened. And that's what they're doing, books, word of mouth, lectures, essays. These moves were countered by the military establishment in two ways. Firstly, they resisted the dissemination of progressive literature. <laughs> hey, stifle that paper. Secondly, they did their best to curtail the careers of those who questioned their own obsolete ideas. That's like that's like evil, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned guys got a good new idea, curtail their career. For example, when Fuller, an early protagonist of mechanization, won the RUSI gold medal for his essay on tanks and later produced a book on the same topic, he was castigated by successive chiefs of staff and remained unemployed in the rank of Major General for three years and then was forcibly retired in 1933. In the course of these events, CIGS Lord Cavan, whose ideas, according to Fuller, were about 800 years out of date, opined that no officer should be allowed to write a book. (laughs) It's like insane, you can't make this up. You can't make this up. If you're ever in a situation where your subordinates are coming up with ideas that you don't agree with and your, your reaction is to shut them down, question yourself. <clears throat> Not to be outdone, his successor Field Marshal Montgomery delivered himself of a diatribe against Fuller's books while admitting that he had never read them because it would make him so angry if he did. <laughs> Equally unambiguous was the treatment meted out to Liddell Hart, a man described by the press as, quote, the most important military thinker of the age of mechanization in any country. This is the guy that we covered on the podcast. I don't know how many episodes we did, but it's a lot of them. B. H. Liddell Hart over the years Liddell Hart produced a number of articles and books on mechanization on new infantry tactics and on the strategic and tactical use of armor his efforts encountered extreme hostility and resistance from the British general staff when he submitted his essay mechanization of the army for military competition it was rejected in favor of an entry quote limitations of the tank the judges were a field marshal and a general and a colonel unfortunately Liddell Hart's entry was not entirely lost to view why could that possibly be unfortunate well it's because along with other products of his pen it was enthusiastically studied by Hitler's panzer general guardian and became required reading of the German general staff You can't make this up. dude. You can't make this up. <clears throat> like those of his fellow protagonists, Liddell Hart's army career was prematurely cut short by the military establishment. The case is germane to the thesis of this book. Here is was a man who is cultured, fluent, lucid, highly intelligent, and that rare combination, a soldier who is also a first-class military historian, one whose advice on military matters was frequently sought by such civilian leaders as Hor and Winston Churchill, who in due course became the military correspondent of the Daily Telegraph and subsequently the Times, chosen by these papers in preference to a number of retired generals who applied for the same job. And Horbalisha, by the way, was the uh, Secretary of War. Prominent figure. Here's a man whose views and writings were eagerly studied and acted upon by many foreign powers, including Germany, Russia, France, and Israel, whose prophecies in the military sphere were borne out time and time again, and who lived to see his ideas on mechanization and tanks tactics used against us by Germany in 1940. But here was a man so deplored by the British establishment, by the British military establishment, that Lord Gort, chief of the Imperial General Staff at the outbreak of the war, felt moved to say during a lecture to 400 officers of the Territorial Army, quote, kindly remember that Liddell Hart does not occupy a room at the war office. <laughs> So not only do these people that can kinda play the game get advanced, people that have trouble playing the game, like Liddell Hart, get, get pushed out. Do I wish he could've played the game a little bit better? Absolutely. Do I wish he would've been a little bit more indirect? You know, in, in his book when he talks about if you become a prophet you get crucified, he became a prof- prophet and he got cru- crucified. It was this same Lord Gort, The Army's top man at the outbreak of the war, whom Horbalicia described as a, quote, utterly brainless and unable to grasp the simplest problem. (laughs) These are the people that are trying to get rid of Liddell Hart. Liddell Hart remarked, if a soldier advocates, here's here's exactly what happens. If a soldier advocates any new idea of real importance, he builds up such a wall of obstruction compounded Of resentment suspicion and inertia that the idea only succeeds at the sacrifice of himself as the wall finally yields to the pressure of the new idea it falls and crushes him and that's what happened to him some military leaders even in democracies have become adept at manipulating their civilian bosses such was the case over the issue of war minister horribleisha it seems he was not appreciated by military establishment. Five reasons relevant to our general theory of military incompetence may be advanced for this, for this antipathy. Firstly, he was probably brighter than some of the senior officers with whom he had to deal. Secondly, his ideas for the army were progressive. Thirdly, he made no bones about using Liddell Hart as his, as his military advisor. Fourthly, he was with every justification critical of generals whose job it was to prepare the British army in France against the German assault on the West in 1940. Fifthly, he was a Jew. It was for a mixture of these reasons that the general staff persuaded Chamberlain to sack the man who had probably done more for the army and defense than any other single person during Hitler's rise to power. It's weird how generals, I mean, it's not weird. It's so prevalent how generals become untouchables, right? How could you dare say anything about this general? He served his, and, and that's what's happening here. And, and look, just because someone served their country, just because someone served their country and did a good job as a platoon commander, as a company commander, as a battalion commander, it doesn't mean they're gonna be awesome as a general. In fact, there's some, some things might indicate that those aren't very different jobs especially when they did good as a company commander or a platoon commander during World War I when doing a good job was not disobeying orders and doing what you were told to do and freaking scurrying to a position where you don't get killed, right? Because what happened to the brave soldiers? Most of them got freaking killed.
1: We've talked about this. Thinking tactically and thinking strategically are really really different, and it's actually really hard to evolve from a tactician to a strategist. That's a, not a, And and in the military, there's kind of a very clear delineation. Like you're sort of a tactician as a junior officer, and the middle officers, you're sort of like an operational guy, which sits between them, and then the generals are the strategic thinkers. But that evolution is really hard. It's really hard. You talked about Peter's principle. I think on the last podcast. Yeah where you get promoted to your level of incompetence. That barrier between tactical thinking and strategic thinking is hard to overcome.
0: Yeah, well you run into it with companies as well where you get some dynamic person in a startup and they're the CEO yeah. of the company but there's only 48 employees and they can make things happen and they kind of impose their will and they, totally. they, can for, they can kind of win the market and talk to people and they're good salesmen and it works out awesome. And then all of a sudden they got you know, 500 employees and they've got a board and they've got regulatory environment that they don't know how to handle and, and they turn into a disaster. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. But what we fail to do is we don't really do a good job of training people and at least making them aware of the situation that they're
1: facing. Yeah, and the other thing I wrote down was you're talking about this is, and I saw this as I got a little more senior in the officer ranks and kind of to get a little more observation of that that general officer tier or that flag officer tier for the Navy is, what gets them there is a bunch of success. Mm-hmm. A bunch of success. And with that set success, if you're not careful what that success can do, and it's not just true in the military, it's true everywhere, is that success is this it equals validation. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of start to get to this validation, like, hey, what I'm doing is working. You know what mm-hmm. I should do? I should keep doing the same thing, and that flies against what you just talked about, which is the training and the evolution to think differently from what you did. And one of the simplest things we see this is, hey, if, I, if I'm a really good at a frontline task, good at that particular task, I'm, I, my, yeah. I'm gonna get promoted. And I'll be the foreman of this other team. And why I'm the foreman is because I'm really good at the task, but my job isn't to do that task anymore. <laughs> my job is to think strategically and lead this team. And I have no skills and no training to do that because the criteria for getting promoted is being good at the task. And that success and that validation, sometimes, not always, sometimes, leads them to a level that they're not capable of doing, but the system doesn't allow you to give them any feedback. Mm-hmm. Because when you're a general officer, guess what? I'm a general officer.
0: <laughs> there's, there's something that you said that requires a little bit more exploring. And that is, you said that when someone gets advanced to, you know, a general officer or a CEO, um, in many cases, it's based on their successes. There's something else it's based on, their lack of failures. So, who, you know, Dave and I go on deployment. Dave does four operations. They all go okay. He gets the job done. Jocko goes, we're on the same deployment. You're a task unit commander, I'm a task unit commander. My task unit does 170 operations. 168 of them go really well and have a huge impact. Two of them are jacked up. Who gets promoted? Who gets promoted? This is not like a theoretical question. Who gets promoted?
1: Yeah. I'm getting promoted. Dave's getting promoted cuz I didn't make any Dave, headlines for this screw up. I didn't cause all this equipment and God forbid somebody got hurt or killed. we're not ta- we're not having a conversation with Dave. Yep. Dave, no friction, no resistance, no problem for me, no additional paperwork. I don't have to s- yep. send an investigation out for what happened. So Yeah, and
0: it's not even that extreme. It's really not even that extreme. Like you're 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 making it really obvious, but it's like, "Hey, you know, Dave did four operations. They went well." Good job. Jocko did 100 operations. They had a vehicle rollover. Right? Um, They lost a radio. And they had a guy get wounded. The guy get wounded, it's like people understand that, but, oh, you know, the vehicle rollover, what kind of, wasn't this this really necessary? And all of a sudden, it's like, well, you know, Dave kind of keeps his nose clean. He did a good job. Who's getting promoted? Davis. So... That's disturbing, the other thing is, you look at these, these generals, who made it? Who's, who's getting promoted? The ones that freaking lived, how did they live? <laughs> they said, oh, you know, sir, maybe I could go back to the rear and, and help you with your strategic planning. You know, here's another cup of tea. Oh, I really like Dave, you know, he's, I wanna bring him back with me. Makes my ego feel good, so you're a little brown noser, and then you end up getting living through World War One, and now I put you under my wing and along you go.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm sticking around the army too after World War I. Oh, yeah, I can right. stomach that whole yeah. thing as opposed to all the guys that came back and I'm like, don't ever call me again. Yeah, I'm not, don't don't ever call me again.
0: Yeah, and not to mention I come back and I'm like, hey look, I did my time. Cool, I'm gonna go out and be an entrepreneur and make money and build a business. You're like, hey, I'm gonna come, I'm kinda scared to get out. <laughs> I'll, yeah. like, I'll just stay in here, I'll be getting a paycheck. Three hots and a cot. You know, I get the uniform. People treat me with respect, I'm good. (sighs) Back to the book. To understand the psychology of these reactionary elements in the military establishment of men who choose to make the army their career, painstakingly work their way up the hierarchy to the highest positions, but then behave in such a manner to ensure that if they are remembered at all, it will be only for their conservatism. We, needs must have recourse To ego psychology thus it seems in that in the present instance military leaders like Deverell Montgomery Milne Ironside and Gort displayed behavior symptomatic of extremely weak egos in this light their behavior typifies the neurotic paradox in which the individuals need to be loved breeds on the one hand an insatiable desire for admiration with avoidance of criticism and on the other hand, an equally devouring urge for power and positions of dominance. That's weird. The paradox is that these needs inevitably result in behavior so unrealistic as to earn for the victim the very criticism which he has been striving so hard to avoid. Consider a few concrete examples of this syndrome. For those who had despaired of anyone ever learning anything from the events of the First World War, 1933 brought a belated gleam of hope with the publication of the Kirk Committee Report, which was not uncritical of the high command. It could hardly have been otherwise but there were those for whom preservation of personal reputations counted for more than the need to avoid the repetition of senseless slaughter to which their direction had given rise. This is, this is evil, I'm, I'm gonna say that word. This is evil. We have a report that comes out that explains what we did wrong, And some people they wanted to preserve their own reputation instead of trying to save future lives from lessons learned one such was Field Marshal Montgomery whose immediate response to the report was to block its dissemination throughout the army while one can wonder at a system which would make it possible for one man to operate such censorship the precise reason for his behavior is by no means obscure Montgomery as he then was Happened to be the chief of staff in the fourth division during the Battle of the Somme, so he's getting ratted out in this report, and he's like puts hides the report. That'd be like if I, we had the blue on blue in Ramadi, and I was like, mm, hide that, we'll stifle it. Our second example is rather more complex concerning as it does that major obstacle to military development, the horse. As a noble, if uncomprehending factor in military incompetence, this animal was much in evidence between the wars. This is very interesting if you uh, know anything about horses. Upon reflection, it's hardly surprising that the horse became the sine qua non of military life. For a thousand years, Med had found it in it enormous advantages. There was nothing better for transportation and load hauling. Horses raised morale and enhanced egos. Horses took the weight off the feet and enabled people to go to war sitting down. When they lay down, you could hide behind them. When it was cold, you could borrow their warmth. And when they died, you could eat them. Because of the traditionally rural origins of so many army officers and military families, horsemanship in the context of sports like hunting, became one of the preferred leisure activities since such sports as polo, pig sticking, and in an earlier age jousting not only act out symbolic aspects of real warfare but are also associated with a higher social class. There's little wonder that they should find so much favor with those who choose the army as a career. All in all, it's not surprising that the cavalry became the branch of the army with the highest status, nor is it surprising that they should have become the most vehement in the denunciation of the tank, which was seen as an intrusive junior rather than the Hair apparent. So they had this long fascination with the horse. They loved the horse. The people that rode horses in the cavalry ended up with a bunch of you know prestigious positions and high-ranking positions. And they saw the tank not as like, hey, this is what's gonna take over the horse. It's trying to, 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 to it's junior to the horse. It's not as good as the horse. Nor is it surprising that the desire of the war office to placate the cavalry was stronger lot than logic. Not only did they veto any expansion of the tank corps but under the direction of Montgomery ruled that the new tank brigade should never be reassembled and this in the mid-1930s with Hitler arming to the teeth. That's, you can't, you you just, you have to have, a, you have to be a, kind of like a, a psychopath to do there's that.
1: Ins- there's a level of insanity in there. It's like, how, how do you look at a horse in a tank <laughs> and look at him and go, well. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking like. The bolt action rifle or the automatic machine gun. Hey, fire that one. I think cool. we're fire. actually
0: talking uh, sword versus yeah. automatic machine gun.
1: I, I'm just trying a to come horse up with something. A a like, tank. Yeah, you like, got to
0: go. For, you got to go harder, bro. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> point. It,
1: it just the, the depths of craziness. And look at that. And and Carrie was talking about this after the last podcast. K Dog was talking about this. Was the culture of the of the um, the cavalry? Mm-hmm. And you just said in there. Uh, what was it a thousand years? Yeah. People using horses yeah. in combat? Like, there's a culture inside there that's gonna be kinda hard to break into the tank? <laughs> Come on, man. And and, and, and it's invokes a kind of the same frustration that I artic- articulated in the very first podcast about the machine gun. No, it was before then. Mm. And when I talked about the machine gun of how how long does it take for me to watch a machine gun mow down some of my guys where I go, time out. Mm. Stop. Stop. Stop I got this one wrong. We need to come up with another plan as opposed to like no Just keep sending them in
0: and do that for four years for
1: four years at the risk of Literally, I mean millions of people but but the horse and the tank and even like old pictures of the world The the crazy thing about World War one tanks, So like the previous era of tanks that they be leveraging them. They're these giant massive things They're like almost like comedically too big <laughs> Yeah, but you, if you would have just put those two side by side, like you said, there's a level of psychopathy, a level of 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 crazy. You got to go. No, the horse. Yeah,
0: give me the horse. Give me and the sword, dude. There was a little bit of, maybe even a little bit more than a little. Um, when when we started using night vision, you've night vision about. goggles. Yeah, did you talked about, about that, man? We we had guys that were like we we'd be wearing night vision on patrol guys but we shouldn't wear night vision like what, what? are you insane it,
1: it lets you see in the dark yeah
0: you get to fight an enemy that's blind
1: to you yeah well i've said this and i i mean in 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 aviation i got to fly stealth airplanes like very modern stealth airplanes and to this day despite the insane advantage the insane advantage there is still an ongoing debate over as to whether or not we should have non-stealth, this is not, this is a, like in fighters. There's reasons to have non-stealth cargo planes and attack planes, Like, but in this world of like airplane fighting against another airplane or using airplanes to get into a contested space, there's still an ongoing debate of, hey, we should just retrofit like really nice legacy airplanes with cool, cool missiles and cool engines and stuff like that. My airplane is invisible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My airplane is invisible. You will not see it. Yeah, this it doesn't is... matter how fast you can go or how much gas you can carry or how cool your weapon is. You're going to lose. How much longer till pilots are
0: not doing this job? Fighter pilots.
1: I think we are one generation away. My Mm. opinion is that the next generation, which what's scary is like, it's much sooner. It's not like 40 years from now. The the next generation of airplanes is going to come out in the next 15, 20 years. And there are going to be no pilots. No, no. I I think this – gen, like, they're building this now. They're designing and building it now. Really? Yeah, and so technology, one of the drawbacks of of airplanes, like – from conception to development and building, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So this plane has been on the drawing board for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what
0: happens when you got the military industrial complex. Cause yeah. if we gave this to Elon Musk, you Dude, be like, oh, got here, your fighter pilot, yeah. it's electric. And, and
1: <laughs> to his dismay, he probably wants and thinks and understands that we should be a generation ahead. But be that as it may, even with that, I think we've got one more airplane in us with a person inside. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. and you know, even with that, it is met with so much resistance, so much institutional resistance. Yeah, that's,
0: which is crazy, right? Cause you take the pilot out of the plane. And, and, and the other thing is you can, you don't have to fight a plane with a plane. You can fight a plane with 19 unmanned drones that have, that cost a fraction of the price and can yeah. maneuver and don't have to worry about the stupid human in there screwing things
1: up. And that's why that story of the naval officer going, you should buy all these tanks because he's got no, he has no personal vested interest in the tank. He's not inside that whole thing. He's not a cavalry guy riding horses. He's like, I'm over here in a boat. I'm just telling you from my vantage point, it's not even close Buy this thing, buy them all right now because he's. Detached. He's detached. He's just like, "Oh, no, I'm not. This is not for my personal gain. Yeah. I'm not going to be in that tanker on that horse. I'm just telling you from from over here, it's not it's not even close. Just do this." Because he sees it from a perspective and that's what I think that's where the that is it the, the level of frustration of hearing this is really hard. It's cuz hey, you're there. I said, bolt, action, rifle, and machine gun, you're know, like, go harder, dude, <laughs> yeah. go harder. Sword you know, which is like a slingshot <laughs> and a heavy machine gun, automatic heavy machine gun. It, th- that's how big the gap is. And the only way to not see the machine gun is to be so invested and so committed to your point yeah. of view that, just like we said last time, you will dismiss the truth, because it doesn't align with your preconceived outcome that you you've created in your head, which is probably, to some degree, the definition of being a psychotic, a psychopath.
0: Uh by the way, they weren't just anti tank, uh and this gets into Dave Burke territory. They were anti aircraft too. Uh here we go. For once the for once the usual rivalry between the two older arms sank beneath their mutual dislike of the new upstart. If anything, the Admirals waxed more rather more negative about aeroplanes than they did than did the generals whose minds, as we have seen, were already discomforted by the issue of tanks. As mechanization threatened horses, so aircraft threatened battleships. But unlike horses and military minds, battleships were only the last succession of obstacles to progressive naval thinking. Before battleships, it had been wood, and before that, sail. Each relinquishing, Each relinquishment and transition had been bitterly resented, heavily opposed, and productive of such irrational thinking as tends to occur when dearly loved objects have been renounced. When there, this is, I've, been, I've been referencing this a lot when I talk to people. When there was talk of iron replacing wood in the construction of ship, one Admiral was heard to remark that the idea was preposterous. Since iron was heavier than water, the ships would be bound to sink. On this issue has been calculated that, and this is fascinating, of the 20 major technological developments which lie between the first marine engine and the Polaris submarine, the Admiralty, Admiralty machine has discouraged, delayed, obstruction, obstructed, or positively rejected 17. 17 out of 20. The essential and necessary incorporation of these developments in the structure of modernization has been achieved by individual and sometimes undisciplined officers by political, industrial and industrial pressures or and most frequently frequently, by their successful adoption in rival navies. So if you think I, I'm going to figure out some kind of, I'm going to figure out what that list is, it's like iron to wo- well, iron to wood, and then getting rid of sails for steam, and then from yeah. steam to what you know, diesel, and then from and there was people resisted every single oh, seventeen sure. out of twenty of those advancements. Yeah, we're there was gonna, resistance. We're going to put a
1: nuclear reactor on a boat. You that's imagine the the, resistance d- that's is the dumbest, dumbest thing, thing you've I've ever heard, heard. right?
0: When we're going to do it on a submarine. Are you insane? Yeah. Can't be done. Can't be done. <sighs> As for battleships whose future usefulness and indeed very existence was threatened by the advent of aircraft, quote, to most admirals the the respective value of battleships and aircraft was not basically a technological issue but more in the nature of a spiritual issue. Totally. They cherished the battle fleet with a religious fervor. As an article of belief defying all scientific examination, the blindness of hard-headed sailors to realities that were obvious to a dispassionate observer is the only explicable through is only explicable through the through understanding the place that quote ships of the line filled their hearts. A battleship had long been to an admiral what a cathedral is to a bishop, and you can't walk away from that.
1: I, I don't know if, if there is an equivalent in the teams. If, if there is, let me know. But that description is 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 beautiful mm-hmm. because in aviation you literally fall in love with your airplane like it's a person mm-hmm. like it's a human being and and the degree to which you cannot see the truth is I would say on par to the degree that you can't see the flaws in your own children. Hey, hey, Jocko, you got an ugly baby? No, I don't. That baby is perfect from head to toe. Everything about this thing is unique and perfect and special. And I can't go in and go. Hey, man, your kid's got some flaws here because that is. You. And the degree to which pilots fall in love with the equipment matches what he described, mm-hmm. the, or or like the cathedral. That's not an exaggeration. And you will see people make these decisions based on an irrational physical attachment to a piece of equipment. Thank God I flew a bunch of different airplanes so I kind of like sort of fell out in love with my first girlfriend, that first airplane. (laughs) But I still kind of look back back fondly go, man, I really love that airplane. And to be told, hey, this thing that you have is flawed, like deeply, deeply flawed and generationally behind where it's supposed to be. And and rather than sort of an objective go, yeah, you're right. There's some things about this that aren't very good oftentimes you get just this hyper irrational, emotional response, like you're talking about a, like I'm not trying to be critical of your, mm-hmm. this is a machine, right? We're not <laughs> we're not in love with the machine, are we? Well, it's pretty spot on.
0: Yeah, that's like when you come up with a plan and you fall in love with your own plan, and I'm like, hey, Dave, not quite sure about your plan and this thing will be, what are you talking about?
1: What are you talking about?
0: Speaking of emotional detach attachments, it was such strong emotional attachment that led admirals to deceive their political masters. You can't; it doesn't get any more horrible than this. I guess it does, but the practical issue was whether or not battleships could defend themselves against aircraft. Having formed the opinion that they could, the admiral, the Admiralty, decided to prove its point in 1936 while aircraft production by the Axis Powers was getting into top gear, the King was invited to a demonstration in which naval ships would attempt to shoot down a radio-controlled Queen Bee target aircraft. Unfortunately, the demonstration did not go well. Despite the fact that the plane was limited to flying 80 miles an hour and flew up and down without jinking, While the ships were given a running start on a parallel course, thereby reducing the speed differential to something approaching 50 miles an hour, not a hit was scored. Dismayed but resourceful, the admirals played their last card, deliberately crashing the radio-controlled plane into the sea, thereby proving, at considerable cost to the British taxpayer, that planes are no match for the battleship when these are in the right hands. That's like an
1: act of treason.
0: That's an act of treason.
1: I hate imagining the actual scene where you're like the remote control guy and I'm over your shoulder. I'm like, do we hit it yet? No. Hey, put that thing in the water. And the guy's guy's like, "Uh, uh, seriously? (laughs) It's like, put it in the water now. (laughs) You know, like that event had to occur. Like in real time, there's something like, hey, this isn't going the way we planned. Let's sabotage our own experiment (sighs) to prove our point that we've already predetermined, which is planes aren't as good as ships. Crash that crash that drone well, yep. ink, well yep. ink, and like like ah, I roger that's her and you like whatever you do you put that thing in the water and Go see look what yeah. happened. Yeah,
2: so this just like essentially on a big scale like what you always say you risk Like some people will sabotage your plan mm-hmm. because they want their plan to be the, they want to prove yep. You know the buck or you know you guys role play or whatever. Yeah, or yep. if you approach the guy in the wrong way He'll be like, yeah, I'll do your plan. If you shove the plan down the guy's throat, mm-hmm. right? And then they're like, okay, I'll carry out your plan. And then they might intentionally sabotage it to prove to you that, hey, your plan sucks. Therefore, we should have went with my plan.
0: Yeah, I, Parallel, sort yeah. of, but um, I, this is actually just like, like treasonous, right? Yeah. To just straight up lie yeah. because you want to protect your little fiefdom and you are putting the security of your nation in complete jeopardy because you're so arrogant and stuck in your old ways and in love with your piece of equipment mm-hmm. that's like that's treason that's treason
1: yeah it's and it's it's also going to result in your pe- your people dying <laughs> cuz the test is actually designed to go hey Let's see if we can learn some stuff here. Hey, it turns out this airplane thing is a good thing. We should, And rather than get to the outcome, you you will sabotage the outcome to get what you want, which is I want to show you my, my battleship is still supreme. Mm-hmm. And the result is you're killing your own people. It, it's not going to happen for five years or whatever the, the timing of that was, but it's going to happen. And we're going to kill hundreds of thousands of people as a result of that. And that's, that's it's treason. That's treason. <laughs>
0: I'm trying to remember. I had something happen one time where I was testing some GPS. for, And, and it was supposed to be waterproof. They're like, hey, this, this GPS is waterproof. It, you don't need to waterproof it. And I was like, <laughs> trust me, how's <I> it? <laughs> like an E4 and E5 and the SEAL teams going over the beach all the time. I was a freaking expert on what was waterproof and what wasn't. And I looked at this thing and I was like, you're saying this thing is waterproof? Like that's what you're saying? And they're like, "Yep." And I said, "No, but how do you how should I prepare it?" They're like, "You don't need to." And I was like, "You want me to test this thing?" And they're like, "Yeah, it's waterproof." And I said, "Okay, cool." Shit was not waterproof. <laughs> you know, like not even close. And brought gave them back. Their flooded out crappy GPS, but there was there was sort of like indications of like you know, what did you do? You know, did you open it? And I was like, no, I didn't open any of these things. It's not waterproof. But you can see that's the kind of test where someone goes, hey, put it in a plastic bag and then say it's waterproof. Yeah. You know, you got some contractor that's gonna sell all these GPSs to to Naval Special Warfare. Not on my freaking watch, you're not. <laughs> this shit is a
1: joke. Yeah. Well, to quell any potential concern, just that scenario of like that world, War, that pre-World War Two, you know, battleship Airplane British thing where it was just like, hey, we're just going to sabotage and, and just falsify the results. I never saw anything to that degree. I saw some resistance for sure, mm-hmm. but I never saw anybody or ever heard anybody, hey, falsify the report, yeah. sabotage the plan. So just so people realize like I, in my experience, and I, I had some interesting things happen in my career. I never saw that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Tr-
0: I don't think I have either. Um, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to think on that one. I probably would have stood out so much. Yeah. I mean, somebody over my shoulder saying, "Hey, put that thing in a waterproof <laughs> bag and call it good." Like, what do you? T- I would no, have never he, done no that way. in a thousand years. It, yeah,
1: like, <laughs> I love the image. Willing put that drone in the water, like, sir. What do you mean? Crash it immediately <laughs> and tell everybody it got shot down. What's like, funny hey, is-, is
0: we crashed some drones. As a matter of fact, we were in. Uh, we were going through, through. Urban combat training and tasking a bruiser. And we're supposed to be using these drones and everything. My freaking AOYC. it was one of Lace AYCs was like a drone pilot. And whatever he was doing like he's like all right i'm going you know we're, we're flying it going to go look at the target and he he bring tries to bring it back and this thing came in at like well, i don't know how fast those things go what would be a realistic s- speed for a drone 50 knots yeah. this thing comes in at 50 <laughs> knots it just waylays into a tree <laughs> and of course they're like hey you know how's that drone working out and i'd be like that drone sucks and the advancement on drones between that time frame 2005 and now is like night and day yeah. but if I would have been setting up the reporter whoever would have been something yeah these things are great no we'd be like this thing sucks this thing sucks make it better and that's what they did <laughs> yeah. so thankfully we, we also didn't like uh, falsify stuff all right those are the that's that that's now we're moving into the uh, second world war the pre the pre the, the in-between war period is over nothing learned nothing figured out no no one taking blame responsibility for anything Second World War there's a quote in here from Liddell Hart the German success in May 1940 could easily have been prevented but for the opportunities presented to them by the allied blunders blunders that were largely due to the pro- prevalence of out-of-date ideas After an appalling start in which the Allies were outfought, outmaneuvered, and outstripped in the quality of their military thinking and equipment, the Second World War produced the biggest transition in military competence since the days of Wellington. It was born of necessity and may be said to have dated from Dunkirk. This jolt to 100 years of military maundering and 20 years of blind complacency achieved three ends. Within a space of days, it shattered many long-held Dearly loved illusions about the nature of modern war it hastened the eclipse of the old the reactionary and the untalented Finally by rendering the armory temporary impotent Dunkirk put the most junior service in the center of the stage Dave Burke is excited now The first time the continued existence of the army and Navy became totally dependent Upon their protection by the RAF Look at the smile on this guy over here As for the bad start, this was a legacy of factors that touched on in the previous chapters. Rigidity of thinking, overconfidence resulting from a pathetic belief in antiquated methods of warfare and refusal to accept that enemy intentions may confound the armchair prophets. The following examples from Lebel Hart's History of the Second War illustrate these shortcomings. On January 10, 1940, a German aircraft carrying the liaison officer of the Second Air Fleet lost its way and crash-landed in Belgium. By an extraordinary chance, the officer was in possession of the complete operational plan for Germany's attack on the West. Did you hear what I just said? (laughs) By extraordinary chance, the officer was in possession of the complete operational plan for Germany's attack on the West. He tried to burn the plan but failed to complete this task before he was captured. In this way, its contents became known to the Allies. Hitler's response was to devise a new plan which involved attacking France through the Ardennes rather than through Belgium as originally intended. This episode was damaging to the Allies for two reasons. First. Firstly, in the belief that the captured plan was a deliberate deception, they failed to modify their own plans. Secondly, contrary to advice received years earlier, they clung to the belief that the wooded area of the Ardennes was impassable Impassable. to tanks. As a result, the strongest Allied forces remained poised for attack through Belgium, while the Germans suffered little resistance to their outflanking drive through the Ardennes. Here's another one. The French, though possessing many tanks which were as good as, if not better than, those of the Germans, were steadfast in their belief that horsed cavalry could destroy German armor in the Ardennes. For this reason, they refused to accept the suggestion that felled trees might be used to delay the German advance. Like the Poles, they were sadly disillusioned about the outcome of a conflict between horse and tanks. That's the Poles and the French. Both making the assessment that, hey, you got tanks, but we got horses. The British retreat from the Gazala Line in 1942, which resulted in the loss of Tobruk, followed by a headlong flight back into Egypt, was the second worst disaster of the war after Dunkirk. Tobruk cost Britain 35,000 casualties and an enormous loss in ground and materiel. Why did it happen? Inadequate generalship, the army commander, Major General Neil Ritchie, a fine-looking man, has been described by his contemporaries in ways strikingly resemblant of Elphinstone, Raglan, and Buller. Here's here's a, here's what his uh, contemporaries had to say about him. Richie was all haywire by then, all for counterattacking in this direction one day and another the next, optimistic and, not, and trying not to believe we had taken a knock. When I reported the state of the 1st Armored Division to him at a time when I was planning to use it for a counterattack, he flew to see me and almost took the view that I was being subversive. Another one, General Ritchie had a great air of decisiveness. It was really rather indecisive. According to the same corps commander, he, quote, had a tendency to ask your advice and having received it, acted in the opposite way. Here's another one. Richie is not sufficiently quick-witted or imaginative. Another one. A fine, robust-looking man with charm and manner, but no aura. And finally, confident and decisive in his speech, but one did not always feel he was quite so confident and decisive in his mind. That's another thing. I talked about that, I think, on the first one. This act that you learn. Yeah. You learn to kind of raise your voice a little bit. You learn to project. You learn to furrow your eyebrows a little bit. And you say, hey, listen, Burke, I love doing that, right? (laughs) Because it's something that we experience so much in the military. Listen up, Burke, hey, I don't need your input right now. Hey, look, we need to make a move, Burke. You know, like that thing. People learn that in the military. You learn how to act like that. And eventually you can learn how to hide behind that. You see that all the time. So And people get fooled by, civilians get fooled like, by that, but like it's going out of style. I mean, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the typecast colonel, the typecast general that furs his brow, sits up straight with a good posture, and then speaks in a clear, effective manner that people are going to listen to. And the politicians love to take that guy and put him out there to put out the word. You know, well, you know what I'm saying? They, they take that guy, they put him out there. Hey, well, you know what? We got Willink. Willink. Willink can put on an act. No one's gonna mess with Willink. Put Willink on the stand. Put Willink on the stand. Willink gets and he puts his uniform on. Freaking puts his shoulders back, chest out, and then says, "I'm going to tell you this one time. Here's how it is going to happen." Boom. People aren't questioning that. Uh, fast forward a little bit under the ineffectual leadership of this big kindly courteous unimaginative apparently complacent yet occasionally touchy general the army suffered a decline in organization discipline and drive it became flabby instead of taut sluggish instead of agile once again that faded fatal amalgam of overconfidence and underestimation of the enemy produced a dulling of military endeavor Rommel himself in his diary ascribed his success to the British predilection for Frontal assaults. Brave but costly charges by small groups in which the attackers banged their heads time and time again against the hold down German panzers. Hold down.
1: Yeah. Let's do a frontal assault against a tank. <laughs> yep.
0: And that's, hull. That's yeah. That's hold down. That's meaning hull down. meaning they've positioned themselves totally. where the hull is you can't see the tank, you can only see the turret. That's hold down. Yeah. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Hold hey. down defilet. You park that thing in a little berm in a little ravine and you can't see it. the only thing you see is this like the gun.
1: Yeah. And guess when you see the turret. Yeah. When About five th- seconds before it <laughs> lights you up and yeah. you're just walking right up on that thing. Dude. It's hard to picture that because you know you know the story of the hey, the French are gonna dig this. Hey, you know what we should do? A deeper, longer, wider trench. And a forest that's impassable by armor like that's their plan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what do we learn? Hey, I got an idea Hey, remember the trenches didn't order one not good enough Let's dig a deeper trench and they're 100% sure that the armor can't go through this forest. So we're good and we all know that story So you're just waiting to hear this this be revealed, mm-hmm. which is the idea of Hey the horses, you know this 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 forest is impassable by equipment so you know what you're going to need some horses. Yeah, you know what? when I had, when I had down some trees. When I had
0: Ben Milligan on fr- from his book um, by Water Beneath the Walls, one of the interesting things the like the Marines had issues at Tarawa, and their solution, like hey we our tracks didn't make it through, and some of our Marines didn't make it to the beach because they hit um you know hit the the reef 800 meters out. Marine's solution was okay. You, guess what? Real simple. We need more more Marines. And more tracks, we need we need you know eighty tracks to make it through, and half of them don't make it. Cool, one sixty is the number.
1: Yeah.
0: and the 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 Navy was like, "How about we go and you know try and figure out where those reefs are?" Hence, UDTs.
2: <laughs>
0: <clears throat> if you didn't listen to that podcast, I think it's two ninety eight with Ben Milligan, and get that book. Get that book, that freaking book is outstanding, by Water Beneath the Waves. Talk about uh, going into depth and figuring out and understanding why things are the way they are. It's an outstanding book. From the standpoint of human behavior, human feelings, leadership and decision making, the events of 1942 in North Africa exemplify in microcosm the major causes of military incompetence. Underneath his robust exterior, Richie, like Buller before him and Elphinstone before him lacked self-confidence and seemed more concerned with proving himself to himself than with prosecuting the war the presiding over interminable committee meetings through which the army was run the seeking of advice and then not taking it and the disingenuous way in which he managed to convince the commander-in-chief that he was protecting Tobruk While in reality, leaving it to the mercy of the Germans are the actions of a man beset by inner doubts. These doubts were skillfully but not perfectly concealed by his often inappropriate facade of monumental complacency. Now we go to Singapore, chapter 11. One can sum up by saying that those responsible for the conduct of the land campaign in Malaya committed every conceivable blunder. Major General Woodburn Kirby, Singapore, the chain of disaster. In the nine weeks between early December 1941 and mid-February 1942, the impregnable fortress of Singapore, Europe's gateway to the east, with its thriving city, huge naval dockyard and strategic vital airfields, fell lock, stock, and barrel into the hands of the Japanese. The invasion of this Island stronghold, the complete defeat of the combined British and Australian garrison with its Army, Navy, and Air Force units was the ultimate unconditional surrender of the whole area was so rapid that even the Japanese were staggered. Indeed, one almost might say nonplussed by the ease, speed, and enormity of their success. In the long run, the results of this disaster may be deemed incalculable. The myth of European supremacy over Asiatic peoples was exploded forever, and the prestige of competence of the British military endeavor in the eyes of the world in general, and America in particular, were damaged beyond repair. In the short run, Britain lost her last and strongest foothold in the Far East, an appalling setback for the global war effort. We lost thousands of lives, both military and civilian, but worse, perhaps, than the loss of life, the military debacle, condemned thousands more to three and a half years of misery in Japanese internment camps. Finally, the economic loss ran into hundreds of millions of pounds. We forfeited elaborate and expensive dock installations, naval and other engineering facilities, military stores, fuel, the major port for exporting urgently needed rubber, and two new first class battleships. Most of these material assets fell virtually intact Into the hands of the enemy, thus in effect doubling their value, the value of their loss to the Allies. Like other cases we have discussed, that of Singapore is essentially a human problem, a product of human behavior, human intellect, human character, and human error. No explanation in terms of geography, climate, broad political, or military considerations can possibly do justice to the facts. At bottom and at the top, we are confronted with issues that are primarily psychological and which only a reduction to psychological principles can possibly explain. So this freaking disaster unfolds in Singapore, a disaster. And as you're going to see, it's not about who is smart and it's not about like the military situation. It's the freaking psychopathology of the, the leaders. Let us state the problem in terms of a number of questions. Why was the impregnable fortress planned and serviced in such a way that while presenting apparently formidable defenses on its southern side, its back and northern shore, was no more of a resistance than would-be invader than the back of Bournemouth? Why was there an almost total lack of coordination and cooperation between those who had been entrusted with the job of defending the island? Why was it clear that the Japanese could and would assault the island from its northern northern side was nothing done to erect defenses in their path. Why did the, the general officer commanding Singapore, Lieutenant General Percival, ignore the urgent advice of his subordinate, Brigadier Simpson, and of his superior, General Wavell, to implement these defenses? Why on the one hand was so little done to protect the civilian population against air raids and on the other, so much done to prevent their knowing the true facts of the situation as these unfolded? Why did General Percival persist in believing the Japanese would attack from the Northeast when confronted with overwhelming evidence that their assault would come from the Northwest? Why did the officer commanding the Australian forces on the island forbid his troops to escape while secretly plotting his own getaway from the island? Finally, and perhaps greatest of greatest interest, how did the men who could perpetrate such colossal errors of judgment ever reach a position where this was possible? It's quite the setup. In 1925, there was a protracted and acrimonious argument between the Army, Navy, and Air Force Chiefs as to how Singapore should be defended. While the older services pressed for fortifications and heavy-fixed guns to repel an attack from seaward, Trenchard for the RAF advocated for a large force of aircraft to repel any attack before it could become come within range of the island. Needless to say, the Army and the Navy won their case at the expense of more junior service. Heavy fixed armaments, armaments became the order of the day. This debate, in which the RAF had to concede defeat, had three unfortunate consequences. Firstly, the island was left exposed and undefended on its northern side. Secondly, senior army commanders from that time on stubbornly clung to the dogma that no Japanese would ever advance on Singapore down the Malay Peninsula. Finally, the bitter inner service quarrel which ensued resulted in an almost total lack of coordination between the three services. For future reference, let me say this. Dave, you have a platoon. In your platoon, there's a, two different, let's call them clicks, And they have two different ideas of what you should be focused on and how you should operate. And what you do is you sort of negotiate a, a piece between these two clicks, and you sort of compromise and you figure out, hey, like we'll do a little bit of this click and a little bit of that click, and you kind of you bring these forces to a, a compromise. You get them working together. You get them to like take these things that they could be arguing about. You, you give one here and give the other side one here. And so you, you end up with a team that, although they're not perfectly in sync, they're at least sort of working together. My platoon, I have two clicks. And what I do is I get mad at them because they don't get along. And then I agree with one of the clicks actually a little bit more. And so I give them favoritism, and now we end up with this, you know, head-butting. Who's got a better (laughs) platoon? Right, so if you think about this in a large strategic view, and you look at a place called the United States of America right now, and you look at how miraculously or strangely, we've become super divisive about all kinds of things to the point where we are banging against each other's heads. And we don't get along. And we've got people that sit so far apart in their beliefs, not only do they sit so far apart in their beliefs, they can't find common ground on anything, on anything. And we've got known, known actors in the world that make moves to increase the division between the sides of people that we have in America. And the people in America don't even recognize that all of this fighting is making our platoon weak. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting that we know that there are actors, that are there are state actors that are creating divisiveness in our own country, and yet, instead of saying, hey, you know what, actually, we we shouldn't argue about that stuff. Hey, you know what, Dave, you got your opinion on that, I got my opinion, but you know what, there's a bunch of stuff we agree on. Let's focus on that. Okay, you know what, that makes sense. We can go execute the mission now. Instead, no, you know what, Dave, you don't agree with me on this? Well, screw you. I don't even wanna work with you. Now we can't operate, we can't get anything done.
1: So obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious. It's hard to look at, too, because not only are you going to disagree with me, you're going to actively, actively sabotage my efforts. 100%. And and the hardest part about that is that the reality is, is we are on the same team. <laughs> those two those two platoons in your task unit, they're on the same team.
0: They're very disturbing. Yeah. I've, try- I've, I've got to think a way to articulate that a little bit more clearly, and... And present it in a way that people can see it, yeah. but it's very difficult because when you present it, if I present it to the platoon and say, "Hey guys, I think it looks like we're we're actually looks like we're actually not uh, helping here. We're not moving this thing forward." You know what? One side says, "Oh, so you're trying to take their side, are you?" Yeah, that's exactly what happens.
1: That's and that's the point I was thinking when you said that. When when you you know you 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 were sort of over like I show a little bias towards this one team, mm-hmm. which is. All the other side needs to go. Oh, I see what side yeah. you're on. Oh yeah, I see what your I agenda don't tr- is. You're one of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I see what you're getting at.
0: So I've got to think of a way to articulate this properly yeah. to people because right now, no, but we don't understand it as Americans. We are in this sort of trap where there's a total lack of coordination between the different sides. Yeah, our government can't even get anything done. They're 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 losers. They're just not, not making any progress. And all they're doing is fighting with each other and not realizing that while we're fighting each other, number one, there's other state actors that are, that are feeding this fight. And while they're, while they're feeding our fight and we're having these infights, guess what these other state actors are doing? Growing their economy, unifying their people, growing their military strength. Growing the will of their people and we are being divided (sighs) I'll think of a way to try and communicate this so people will hopefully start to understand it I haven't done a good job thus far Meanwhile back on Singapore There's a total lack of coordination between the three services the the reason this is such a fitting thing is because you're gonna see what happens in Singapore when you don't work together And when your ego, oh, yeah, by the way, Dave, I think I know everything. And so, therefore, how can you possibly be right on anything at all? Yeah.
1: You certainly know you're right. Oh, I definitely know I'm right.
0: The RAF began constructing airfields without consultation with the Army, who would have to defend them. So, there's a great move. (laughs) Uh, Japanese military machine was, uh, oh, yeah, this was the belief was, look, the Japanese, they're, they're primitive. They're not going to be able to, we we shouldn't even take them seriously. Thus, and now fast forward a little bit, thus when the Malay Tribune published the news that Japanese transports had been sighted off the southern tip of Indochina, the editor was immediately castigated by the commander-in-chief of the Far East, Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham, who said, I consider it most improper to print such alarmist views at a time like the present. The position isn't half so serious as the Tribune makes out. and This is such a great little section. He says, this form of complaint is not without interest. Firstly, he did not deny the truth of the press release. He hardly could since it had originated in a report by Reuters, which had been passed by the censor and which undoubtedly was true. Secondly, he managed to imply all in one breath that the situation was both not serious and yet likely to cause alarm. Like, why are you causing alarm like this, Dave? And by the way, there's nothing to be panicked about. (laughs) Uh, His words exemplified a tendency seen all too often to talk down to a civilian population as a group through some weakness of intellect or lack of moral fiber, oh, sorry, who through some weakness of intellect or lack of moral fiber could not be trusted with information held by their elders and betters. I Meaning the is like, mm, you don't really know what's going on here. You need to worry about that. The guardians of Singapore were prime exemplars of this motivation after a long history of wrong thinking, they could not afford to be found mistaken. The more events proved them to be wrong, the stronger their defenses became against admitting this to be the case. And this is very important. As Hitler's administ- administration demonstrated in its starkest form. Man, this is important. Suppression of the truth involves two procedures on the one hand Censorship and on the other hand official communiques The high command in Singapore employed both measures Take the order of the day released to the Malay tribune a bare two months before Singapore capitulated it reads we are ready we have had plenty of warning, and our preparations are made and tested. We are confident our defenses are strong and our weapons efficient. Whatever our race, we have one aim and one only. It is to defend these shores, to destroy such of our enemies as may set foot on our soil. What of our enemy? We have seen... Before us, Japan drained for years by exhausting claims of her wanton onslaught of China. Let us all remember that we here in the Far East form part of the great campaign in the world of truth and justice and freedom. As the editor of the Tribune said, it was hard to believe that anybody could deliberately tell so many lies. On Monday the 18th, 1941, General Headquarters issued its first war communique. It stated that the Japanese had failed in their attempt to land at Kota Baru. This was followed shortly after by a second communique which stated all surface craft are retiring at high speed and the few troops left on the beach are being heavily machine gunned. In fact, the communique was essentially untrue and deliberately misleading. Within a space of a few hours from the time of the Japanese landing, Kota Baru was firmly in enemy hands. Uh, There's a couple battleships. As a desperate measure, two battleships, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, were sent to Singapore to create an 11th hour presence. They were under the command of Admiral Sir Tom Phillips. In the words of one who met him, quote, a real old sea dog bluff and tough. Unfortunately, he lacks sufficient vision. Despite strong warnings that he could not expect adequate air cover, he was soon off with his two ships in search of trouble. At first, all went well as the ships steamed reassuringly up the east coast. When he heard that there was weather, so he thought he'd be okay, his ships, but the weather lifted. His ships were spotted by Japanese Air Force, torpedoed and sunk with a total loss of 840 officers and men. By all accounts, Phillips was a brave and conscientious officer, but his braveness bordered on foolhardiness, and his errors of judgment not only had a devastating effect on that much cherished commodity, but the morale of the Singapore civilians also sealed the fate of their city. So much for the Navy. In their chosen field, the senior command of the RAF acquitted themselves little better. Better. It has already been seen how Air Chief Marshal Brooke Pompum underestimated Japan's air strength in comparison with his own ill-assorted group of obsolete aircraft. The same 63-year-old officer whose most notable characteristic was a tendency to fall asleep on the slightest pretext showed such disastrous hesitancy and indecision in his capacity as commander-in-chief that as the official history was moved to state quote it is possible that he did not fully realize the importance of speed the need for quick decision was not apparently realized at headquarters Malaya command and this is something I talked about earlier the first night raid they get a they get a warning 30 minutes early that there's a Japanese inbound and um They didn't do anything. It seems the Japanese had committed the unforgivable faux pas of attacking at night. Unforgivable because it conflicted with the official dogma that the Japanese were unable to fly their planes during the hours of darkness. This idea cost Singapore 61 dead and 133 injured. But the recklessness of the admirals and the dithering of the air marshals were nothing as to the uncompromising of the generals it seemed that nothing could move them not even pleading of their fellow officers as noel barber says in his book sinister twilight quote when Big brigadier general simpson and you remember this is like the good guy when brigadier general simpson the chief engineer went to see major General Gordon Bennett, commanding the 8th Australian Division, he found it impossible to make him realize that there was an urgent need for anti-tank defenses. At first, he did not want to discuss the matter at all, Simpson noted after the meeting. Simpson was horrified. Could not the Australian general understand that there was nothing on the long road to prevent the enemy from reaching them? Apparently, Gordon Bennett could not. For in his diary that night, he wrote, Malay Command sent Brigadier Simpson to discuss with me the creation of anti-tank obstacles for use on the road. Personally, I have little time for these obstacles, preferring to stop and destroy tanks with anti-tank weapons. No wonder that the Japanese never slowed down. No wonder that time after time, troops were annihilated by skillful Japanese enveloping tactics. On the British side, wrong decisions were made, communications broke down, whole pockets of troops were cut off. First, Japanese tanks appeared and came As a great surprise to the British who had not one single tank in Malaya. In a jungle country where the British had insisted that tanks could never operate, the Japanese tanks moved easily between spacious rows of rubber tree. Major General Gordon Bennett was not to use the appropriate vernacular, an isolated pocket of resistance, nor did he hold the record of obstinacy. In Barber's words, attempts by Brigadier Simpson to move and add to the defenses had been balked at at every turn, largely by General, General Percival, who seemed to have had a fixation against such measures. Nothing had been done, nothing was being done despite previous pleas, a hazard of belonging to any rigidity Any rigidly authoritarian hierarchical organization is that from time to time, the individual out of dire necessity or from strong personal conviction feels compelled to apply pressures to those above him. It is a hazard because the ethos of the organization, whether it be a Victorian family, an English boarding school or the British army demands that pressure always moves only in one way downwards rather than upwards. To buck the system by prodding those above can have unpleasant consequences. You're in a totally freaking rigid situation. And Simpson is trying. Simpson is trying. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. It seems that Simpson was past taking no for an answer for he said to the general, Sir, I must emphasize the urgency of doing everything to help our troops. They're often only partially trained. They're tired and dispirited. They've been retreating for hundreds of miles. And please remember, sir, the Japanese are better trained, better equipped, and they are inspired by an unbroken run of victories. And it has to be done now, sir. Once the area comes under fire, civilian labor will vanish. He's wanting to get these, just just get freaking obstacles set up. The plea was forceful, respectful, and logical, but amazingly, the general remained unmoved. Simpson, in his rising anger, said, look here, general, I've raised this question time after time. You've always refused. What more, you've always refused to give me any reasons. At least tell me one thing. Why on earth are you taking this stand? He's like, hey, why, why the hell don't you want me to build obstacles? What's wrong with you? Why not? At long last, the general officer commanding Malaya gave his answer. Quote, I believe the defenses of the sort you want to throw up are bad for the morale of the troops and civilians, end quote. Simpson was, quote, frankly horrified and remember standing there in the room suddenly feeling quite cold and realizing that, except for a miracle, Singapore was as good as lost. As he put on his Sam Brown, Simpson could not forbear to make one last remark, quote, Sir, it is going to be much worse for morale if the Japanese start running all over the island. you can't make it, dude
1: that is so hard to listen to and for whatever (laughs) sense of validation in my head of as soon as he said it's bad for morale my first thought was you know what's worse for morale and of course you know i don't know he's gonna say but i understand that that's what this guy is seeing or thinking and and you saying that doesn't make me feel any better because it's just i mean i'm just getting repetitive at this point it's Mm. just a a you have to be crazy to not accept to not accept the facts that don't align with the worldview that you've created in your head.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm only reading chunks of the book. Totally. It's even worse than, it's worse than I'm making it sound.
1: And I have the distinct disadvantage of seeing how much of this how much book I'm you've sk- gone, gone through and go, <laughs> wow, there's chunk." I mean, big, big chunks, yeah. which I can only assume. Yeah. Just as reinforced just, over and over yes, again. This another example, another example, another example, another example and this dude is a good writer, mm. and he's a good writer. And you and, and I'm glad that in the very beginning you set this up. This this isn't a researcher. This isn't like a, a theorist or 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 a you know an academic. Mm. He, he has all those pedigrees. Yeah. This guy fought. This guy fought. In World War he was, a, he was a warrior. He, understood, he was wounded. He, yes, yep. yes, by so, his own incompetence, <laughs> by, and, but through his own admission <laughs> yeah, by his yeah, own incompetence, yeah. which is like, awesome. and he's humble. Yeah, 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 which is awesome. So, yeah, this is. This is rough and and I think what I'm still adding to this is just I think it's at at a point of repetition of just It it's really hard to accept that these are real stories from real people in real leadership positions leading up to What was just people getting slaughtered
0: you know like you said he was a soldier but he's also a psychologist and so he gives these psychological assessments too. so here's here's one of them in the case of Percival and Gordon Bennett to erect defenses would have been to admit to themselves the danger in which they stood in other words their professional anxiety about civilian morale was really displaced anxiety about their own morale Looking further into the story of Singapore, one is struck by the compulsive element in this refusal of the military to defend itself. Such compulsive behavior is typical of many who present an authoritarian personality and are reared in an organization which traditionally deals with fear and danger by ritualistic means, i.e., bullshit, chicken shit, drill and parades, etc.
1: Or is what I think he referred to earlier is like the real business of soldiering. <laughs> We're going to get back to you know um, drilling ceremonies.
0: So there's a there's a admiral that comes along, or yeah, uh, who was it? Supreme commander of Allied forces in the Far East. This guy Archibald Wavell, and he he shows up and is kind of like, "What the hell's going on, bro?" Uh, so then next thing that happens is a director from Churchill giving detailed instructions on how to defend the North Shore. The measures listed were precisely those which had been advocated by Simpson. But despite these pressures, Percival still did nothing. When he eventually issued a plan, it was already too late for the necessary civilian labor was no longer available, just as Simpson had said it was going to be. On the disposition of his forces, Percival's thinking seemed no less deranged. Rather than hold a force in reserve that could, ru- could be rushed quickly to wherever the Japanese eventually chose to land, he decided to spread his troops thinly over a long front. In other words, he decided now, because it would be good for morale, just exactly what he had refused to do early because it would be bad for morale. In this battle of Singapore, and they put that in quotes, order of the day, Percival made, it, made great play of phrases like, the enemy within our gates, loose talk, and rumor mongering, all calculated to alarm civilians. And this from the man who had laid such stress on the importance of civilian morale. Of this period, Barber writes, in all the catalog of ineffectual leadership, nothing is quite so puzzling as the virtual absence of any deterrent action during the last precious hours of daylight before the Japanese attacked. It is hard to believe that a modern general could so easily ignore what was happening around him. That's, I've never heard quite as bold of a statement as in all the catalog of ineffectual leadership. That's a bold
1: one. Yeah, that's a big catalog.
0: It says, for the Allies, it was a week of chaos and confusion, unrelieved by any vestiges of competent leadership or generalship. Thanks to the absence of defenses, including a failure to use searchlights, which had been assembled to blind and make targets of the attackers as they paddled their way across the Johor Straits, the Japanese landed almost unmolested. Despite a devastating barrage from Japanese artillery, British guns, instead of pounding the enemy's point of embarkation, remained mute, awaiting orders that never came. Despite weeks of warning, Allied ground forces were speedily outflanked, encircled, cut off, or routed. In the event, 138,708 British, Indian, and Australian soldiers either died or went into captivity. This is the beginning, if you've listened to podcast number 12, Alistair Urquhart, the Forgotten Highlander. This is is where he starts his captivity. I think he'd been in the army for like two or three months at this point, 19 years old. 138,000 in one event. <clears throat> of all the instances of military incompetence considered in this book it is the fall of Singapore which most clearly gives the lie to the so-called bloody fool theory of military ineptitude Percival was in fact highly intelligent and had shown himself in pre- previous years to be a brilliant staff officer what he shared with other earlier military incompetence were passivity the opposite of default aggressive by the way and courtesy, rigidity, and obstinacy, procrastination, gentleness, and dogmatism. 138,000. Two battleships, by the way. Insane. <sighs> the next chapter is about. Arnhem. Um, this is one we covered. We covered, so we've covered part of Singapore. Obviously, when we covered Alexander Urquhart, Arnhem, we covered podcast ninety four. The the book was called Men at Arnhem, written by Jeffrey Powell, who was there, who fought there. And I think you know re- when you read reading this assessment. Really puts it. Really puts that book into perspective. It starts off with this couple quotes. All the accumulated evidence confirms that, like Gallipoli, this was a British disaster where naked courage lacked the bodyguard of competent planning, competent intelligence, competent technology. Yet war's object is victory, not the Victoria Cross, and it was shameful that by autumn of 1944 we could still be so amateur the object is victory not the Victoria Cross If you don't that's the equivalent of the Medal of Honor in England here's a private soldiers comments it began to seem to me that the generals had got us into something they had no business doing if it achieved nothing else operation market garden Montgomery's plan to capture and hold a bridgehead across the Rhine in Northern Holland at least demolishes the myth that military incompetence stems from stupidity. For sheer initiative, quickness of mind, fortitude, and selfless heroism, the conduct of those who actually fought the battle has never been surpassed. By the same token, the men who planned and administered the operation were probably as intellectually gifted, well-trained, professionally competent, dedicated, and conscientious as any military planners have ever been. And yet the unfolding of Market Garden revealed all the symptoms of high-level military incompetence. You, you, that's like incre- How would you feel if someone said you know what Dave you're intellectually gifted well-trained professionally competent Dedicated and conscientious, that's what we're looking for in our leaders. And yet this thing is a disaster The failure of the operation resulted from a, a, a linked Together of the following factors One, as a result of his neglect to open up the port of Antwerp by clearing the shelled estuary, Montgomery allowed the German 15th Army to escape north into Holland, where it was available to defend the approaches to Arnhem. Two, the arrival at Arnhem of 30 Corps depended upon the advancing across 64 miles of enemy-held territory on a one-tank front along elevated, unprotected highways flanked by a soft and and sodden tank-proof landscape interspersed with waterways. Any delay, a blown bridge, an enemy ambush, a blocked road, and the entire column would be stopped. Any delay, and the Germans would have more time to bring up reinforcements. In the event, it is hardly surprising that 30 Corps never did reach Arnhem that they could not achieve it even in nine days what had been scheduled to take 48 hours. Now, I'm gonna say, I know I gave credit to your 12-year-old daughter, and I'm gonna say, your 12-year-old daughter might not be able to figure this one out. Look, you look and you gotta go 60, what is it, 64 miles, 67 miles, 64 miles. But pretty much any Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps sees a channelized 64 mile road that's completely exposed to the enemy and doesn't like this plan yeah
1: if i'm hearing it correctly what you're describing is a one essentially a one it's a he called it a single tank approach single a one, one approach. lane highway yep. which on either side is impassable yeah due to you know canals and and, and the terrain whatever it is yep. it's impassable you have a one lane highway and your entire formation is going to be single file. Yep. Is how this is going to work.
0: A- and he mentions we might get ambushed, right? Or or we might get uh, a blown bridge. How about this? A ta- broken down tank. How about how about we have a, a freaking crash? <laughs> <clears throat> Number three, as might have been expected from what is known of English autumns, the mists, if not the mellow fruitfulness of, the, of an English late September, delayed the departure of subsequent gliders and paratroopers for the reinforcement of the 1st Armored Division. Like, we didn't think there might be fog in the morning where in England, England, market garden, perhaps more than most military operations necessitated good communication between the various units and commanders of the attacking force. But here, technology failed them. Though it was now 50 years since Marconi had succeeded in sending messages by wireless, the radio sets carried by the invasion force proved useless. Unless within earshot of each other, no one knew what anyone else was doing. And look, you can say technology failed them. If I'm a freaking military planner and I'm relying on the communications in 1944, that's what's gonna make us successful, you're an idiot. We could barely rely on communications 10 years ago. We can rely on them a lot more now. Maybe, okay, not 10 years ago, sorry, Uh, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you're barely, you're barely, like the year 2000, you're barely saying, oh yeah, we don't we we'll get comms. We had backup comms all the time. Backup communication plans, we had all the time. And you know what, we had them in Ramadi as well, of course. Yeah. So to think that your comms are going to be good to go in 1944, that's not technology failure. That's a freaking lack of planning.
1: Yeah. A single point of failure of of probably the most critical thing you're able to do is talk. Yeah, More than employ your weapons, even more than moving your ability to talk is probably the most critical thing that you have to coordinate all these different assets, all these different things going on. I can't secondary. I mean, <laughs> we had, I remember when I was in Ramadi because as an Anglico Marine, comms was my, was really the number one thing. It was secondary to the to the utilization of the aircraft. Number one was comms. We had this incredible comm suite and every brief was, hey, let's hire, let's create the prioritization of how we're going to communicate. And it was based on where we were, how far away we we're going to be, what assets were available. If I have a Humvee, Cool. I got a vehicle. It's powered. I got this high-powered antenna. I've got these cool powered radios. And if I got to get out of that Humvee and start walking, I don't have that thing anymore. Yep. So I got to have a backup plan. Yeah. And every single mission I went on, me and my radio operator talked about: if this doesn't work, what are we going to do? And guess what? Stuff, even the nicest, best, highest
0: tech didn't work routinely. Yep. And by the way, what are you doing then? You're getting out your signal panel. <laughs> right. We're marking our position with a big orange yep. panel. <clears throat> Number five, since the airborne assault was to take place in daylight, and because it was vital that 30 Corps should complete their journey within 48 hours 64 miles in 48 hours on a single track the whole enterprise depended upon the absence of strong German forces, both in Arnhem area and on the approach route from the south. Hence, it came of something as a jolt when they received reports from the Dutch underground that two SS Panzer Divisions, which had mysteriously disappeared some time previously, had now reappeared alongside, almost alongside the dropping zone. This information, passed on to Montgomery, received support from the British aerial photography of German tanks in the Arnhem area. Meanwhile, forward troops of the British Second Army reported a buildup of German forces along their intended line of advance. Hmm, might want to reconsider. This is the moment to reassess the risks involved, but since these ugly facts did not accord with what they had planned, they fell upon a succession of deaf ears. Taking the lead from Montgomery, who described the report as ridiculous, British Second Army headquarters were quick to discount it also. When one of his intelligence officers showed him the aerial photographs of German armor, General Browning, At first, British Airborne headquarters retorted, I wouldn't trouble myself about these if I were you. They are probably not serviceable at any rate. (laughs) Is there any stronger form of just straight like denial and idiocy than that right there? You get shown the, first you get intel reports, and then you get shown photographs of the armor tanks, the German tanks on the ground, and you're like, they're
1: probably not serviceable. You can't make this shit up. You also know that there was two divisions there that are gone you, it's it's they didn't appear out of nowhere you know these divisions existed yeah that's
0: the intelligence officer was then visited by the corps medical officer who suggested he should take some leave because he was so obviously exhausted and at first allied Army headquarters, the chief intelligence officer, British, British Lieutenant Colonel, decided there was no direct evidence that the Arnhem area contained, quote, much more than the considerable flak defenses already known to exist. As Ryan puts it, quote, all down the Allied line of command, the evaluation of intelligence on the panzers in Arnhem area was magnificently bungled. Finally, just in case there were any residual doubts, the intelligence staff of the Second Army came up with the reassuring opinion that any German forces in the Arnhem area were, quote, weak, demoralized, and likely to collapse if confronted with a large airborne attack. (laughs) That's insane. The freaking Nazis. The Nazis are trying to defend their Reich. They're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their country. They know what happens if they lose. They're some of the finest fighting forces in the world. And yet we're just going to go ahead and catalog them as weak, demoralized, and likely to collapse. And by the way, randomly, it just if they're confronted with a large airborne attack, like that's the thing. Because hey, when you're in an airborne attack, because that means you, you, do you even have anti-tank weapons? Barely, you've got no armor. This is ridiculous. Market Garden went ahead, but not so quite as planned. Instead of encountering a few old men who collapsed or ran away, first airborne division fell upon a hornet's nest of German armor. armor. Far from being demoralized, the enemy fought like tigers to defend the gateway of their homeland and far from sweeping across Holland to aid the hard-pressed paratroops, the tanks of the 2nd Army's 30 Corps were reduced to a crawl by the combination of unsuitable terrain and determined opposition. And this is gonna finish out this section of the book. Defeat was absolute and terrible. Short on everything but courage, the men of 1st Airborne Division held on until their numbers had been reduced from 10,005 to less than a quarter of that figure. Total allied losses in killed, wounded, and missing exceeded 17,000, some 5,000 more than those who became casualties on D-Day. So there you have it. Defeat was absolute and terrible. And that despite the fact that for the beginning of this section, sheer initiative, quickness of mind, fortitude, and self selfless heroism, the conduct of those who actually fought the battle has never been surpassed. And and this you want to talk about disturbing. Uh Field Marshal Montgomery described the mission as a ninety percent success. That's that's how he presented it. Ninety percent success.
1: I, I think to be clear, if I understand what you are saying, in the aftermath, in the aftermath yes, of he, everything that yes, happened, he
0: considered it. Yeah, he reported, considered, told people, right, <laughs> that this was a ninety percent success. Um, actually. <laughs> There's a, a little quote in there I gotta read based on that. There's this, the, the, he, so he says this is a 90% success and um, there's a P- Prince Bernard of the Netherlands said, my country can never again afford the luxury of a Montgomery success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we've got. Um, it's insane. It's weird how you and I are at a loss for words over and over and over again.
1: If, you know, if you're listening to this and you've got some free time, I, I think I mentioned it last time. We're talking about some of the characters, but Band of Brothers covers this and and Market Garden from the American, um, you know, uh, Airborne Troopers and, and RNM. There's a cool replaying and retelling of this and what we saw in the combination of that, but this is revealed there. It's It's... It's very well done, but it does not It does not um, expose the depths of the why behind it. It looks at it looks like it looks at it from a tactical point of view and it's it's very good to see it's really you should watch it it's not mm. Banner Brothers is awesome, but this takes it and reveals it on a level that that for me the reason I can't I don't know what to say is it's really hard to just it's this is this is 1944
0: mm. Yeah, th- we aren't new. We
1: we we are not. We're experienced yes, combat. Yes, in d days is behind us. Like this isn't figuring out. Hey, how do we get our footing here? Things are not going. Oh, this isn't Singapore. This isn't Pearl Harbor. This isn't the invasion of Poland. This isn't even the Battle of Britain. This is 1944. It's 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 crazy. Yeah, you know that
0: you can see. Uh, I guess the british the British generals but they they have a different little character that they play, you know, when they get up and they need to convince people you can see like Monty, right? you know, getting up Well, gents, it's a rough fight, but we've got ninety percent success, right you know you you can like that they're doing a different thing, but it's the same it's a different accent, but it's the same bullshit chest out, furled eyebrows, a little bit more a little bit more haughty from the Brits, from Montgomery, but he's playing that same role. And you gotta ask yourself, why does this happen? Why, why is this happening? Why are we going through these historical examples? It's not from technology, it's not from lack of fighting spirit, it's not the terrain, um, it's bad leadership. And where does this bad leadership come from? Where is it rooted? Well, it is rooted in the psychological, the psychological minds of these leaders, and there's plenty of great ones, and we're not talking about them on this podcast. We're talking about the psychopaths, and we will dive into that on the next podcast. Until then, Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Um, You know, we're we're trying to not be psychopathic types of leaders. We're trying to be better than that. We're trying to be better in all ways, you know? Yeah. Got any recommendations for us? How to get better?
2: We're trying not to have monumental complacency.
0: That's definitely, we're trying not to do that. I think
2: that was a a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, let's not do that. How about that? Okay, well, let's start with ourselves, right? You start with yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to put your oxygen mask on before my own. Okay. Otherwise, I cannot breathe and then I cannot, you know function
0: Well, I I guess technically speaking, if I was in charge of a group of soldiers. Yes. And I was uh I had gout. Yeah. I gout, was overweight. Yeah. I was unhealthy. Yeah. I was mentally unstable. Yes, sir. I don't think I'm going to do a good job leading my soldiers. It's going to be very hard. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. So, let's to your point. Let's make sure w- we got our shit together.
2: Yes, sir. I, I agree and yeah, here's some ways to do it. Look, we're working out. We're reading. We're reading.
0: Yeah, we're definitely reading.
2: We're listening. Uh, you That's know, what I do. Yeah, I listen.
0: Work out and read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah.
2: work out and I listen, you know, and I'll read it here and there. Either way, when we work out, we do things, we got to put our bodies through little something so they can adapt mm-hmm. to be ready for a big something. Hopefully, okay. hopefully, hopefully. Okay. Right. On this path, we're gonna take some beatings. It's okay, we got some supplementation. Okay, let's talk about energy drinks first. Mm-hmm. Energy drinks, the good energy drinks. Actually, now I think nowadays when we talk about energy drinks, we're not even talking about the bad ones anymore.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: unless we indicate so We need to make sure that we
0: tell people that when we talk about energy drinks, we're talking about a certain type of energy drink that's good for you in all aspects. That's what I'm saying, exactly. Okay. There are energy drinks that are horrible for you.
2: Yes, sir. But now for now na- for now from now on, we're gonna indicate that we're talking about that kind. Okay. Either either way. I got you. Okay, Jocko, discipline go. <laughs> energy drinks. If you don't know, that's the that's a healthy energy drink. Got a little bit of caffeine in that one.
0: Ninety five milligrams, like a cup of coffee. Yes, sir. hmm
2: Um, a bunch of other healthy stuff. An energy drink that is literally healthy for you. So Nootropics, boom. vitamins. Boom, there you go. Yeah, it's basically everything that you've con- that you come to energy drinks for, without the the backside. What do you call tab? You gotta right. pay with your health.
0: Have you ever? Do you like the taste of any fast food?
2: Well, you know, depends on uh, like and fast. Wait, let, me and food. Let, yes, me, let me clear the path for you. Let
0: me clear the path for you. You, if you bring me to a Wendy's, which I used to work at, I'm going ham in Wendy's, yes, right? Sir. I understand. L- like, I, I, would re- I really enjoy the taste of Wendy's. Yeah. Probably two years ago, I think one of my kids went and got a McDonald's. You familiar with this place?
2: I, I, I hear things, yeah.
0: I, I had a couple fries. Yeah. And let's face it, dude. I mean, these things are engineered yeah. by doctors <laughs> and physicists and yeah. chemists. To yeah. satisfy your well, your, yeah. your taste buds yeah. and your dopamine's firing, right? Yeah. All this stuff is going on. So now imagine this: all that goodness. Hmm. Imagine if you had all that goodness and there was zero downside, <laughs> right?
2: Well, you know what's funny? I had this mental exercise because that's what
0: you get with, with with the go. Yeah, you get all that. You get all that goodness. Everything, you get all that goodness. Everything. You no signed up for. Yeah, exactly. No right. downside. You just go at, at, just go ham. You, you literally went, drink four down. of them. You <laughs> You're not going to sleep tonight, by the way. <laughs>
2: no, I actually, I probably am. Well, maybe. I don't know. Either way, I signed up for all that. See what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Yeah, the McDonald's thing. Uh, I talked to my
0: kids before McDonald's, they go to bed. McDonald's. Wendy's, Burger King. Uh, what's your go to? Well, I don't have a go to. I haven't legitimately had fast food in years. Like, I haven't. Okay, like, I had a few fries. Wait a second, Chick Fil A.
2: Well, during wrestling well, season, during wrestling season, Chick Fil A is not as, like as greasy. Let's phase Okay, so we, we talked about this actually briefly. Okay. While I went when mm-hmm. I was on my w- r- way to Greg Jane's house, mm-hmm. and th- I I had some McDonald's straight up, Damn, and I went kind of hard too. Week,
0: I didn't bro. eat anything all day. <laughs> it was weak. It was very very weak. Uh, oh that's the time you got like taunted by it was right on the side of the road it was right on the side of like <laughs>
2: literally like uh, uh, not it was even almost out of the easier way. to
0: get to Greg Train's house <laughs> <laughs> if you went through the McDonald's drive-thru yeah. <laughs> that's this what it is felt what you like. convince yourself that of that
2: is what it felt like yes um, well you
0: know there's that Wendy's right by Victory MMA and Fitness
2: yeah oh yeah. yeah that's another one that's another one but I fell for the trap of Wendy's one time I told you this I think I told you this where after training I was like I was in the mood for Wendy's had, for yeah. like uh, 48 hours yeah. and I was like okay man look there's the Wendy's on the way to training I'm like, there's the Wendy's. It, today's the day. I can't deal with this feeling yeah. anymore. I go train, like, kind of hard. Yeah. After training, I go, boom, right into the Wendy's. <laughs> right out of the Wendy's. drive through boom, go, eat it. And I felt completely like shit afterwards. Oh, completely. Yeah. After training, Wendy's, boom, it, like, That's it horrible. jams you up. Oh, yeah. yeah. You from, shouldn't do that. From then on. Wendy's is easier to resist.
0: Check this out. Imagine if you could go to Wendy's and you ate it and it was delicious and made you feel great. Yeah,
2: yeah. Help you recover.
0: That's what this drink is. Yeah.
2: That's
0: what this drink is. Oh, yeah. It's literally. a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. Chocolate
2: dude. with a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. Right, that you yeah, can man. have
0: all upside and no downside. That's a miracle, yep. right? Yep. Am I wrong? You were not. Am wrong. I wrong,
2: dude? You were correct, actually. All right. Well, so there you go. You so might yeah. want to
0: try some of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So now everyone's fired up. I get it. So. Hey,
0: similar vein, mulk. Similar vein, mulk. Yeah. Because uh, the same thing. You're fired up to have something that tastes really good. You're fired up for a milkshake.
2: Yeah.
0: But true. you can you know you can, if you go gut bomb a milkshake, bro, like you feel like insulin coming out of your eyes. <laughs> like it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah. But you go eat a monk. Yeah. yeah. Easy money. Your your insulin level's freaking flatlined.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's no spike sweetened with monk fruit. No, no reason to go kill yourself. No reason to get, drink poison. No,
2: no reason to drink poison.
0: It's another miracle. It's true. So uh, two for two scenarios. <laughs> miracles, miracles brought scenarios. to you by oh. Jocko Fuel. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. While you're at it, take care of your joints. You got joint warfare, super krill oil. Mm. While you're at it, take care of your immunity, cold war and vitamin D3. Sometimes yep. we don't get out in the sun as much as we need to. That's bad. You know, that is bad. But the, the sun... Uh, Provides vitamin D, but if you don't get it from the Sun boom vitamin D3 You don't have to go uh, out in the Sun if you don't want to
0: do my dog goes out in 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 my uh, On a lounge chair like a chair. What is it called? Um, like a deck chair Sure. He just Dexter. goes out there and he just gets vitamin D all oh, day. He goes sunbathing. <laughs> oh, for the sunbathing
2: sure. dog. Okay. All right.
0: Like, yeah, that's up, good.
2: Bro? Well, yeah. So he might not need this, but for those okay. of us who may not hit the sun as often as your dog or whatever, uh, yeah, vitamin D3, all good. All Cold right. Where, War where, two. Where,
0: where are we to get these miracles? JockoFuel.com. Yep.
2: Also at the vitamin shop. Vitamin shop. Also oh. for the energy drinks. Wawa. Wawa. Yep. Yeah.
0: You know what we're working on?
2: Hmm.
0: Ready to drink milk. Oh, so you just roll in yeah, yeah, and you yeah. just pull it good off idea. the shelf oh, yeah. and you're slamming a milkshake that's good for you. Oh, yeah. This is like another miracle. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Dishing up miracles. It's good. <clears throat> but yeah. So yeah. Also, you can get a subscription to this stuff if you don't know that. You, you get free shipping and you get it. You're not know, going to uh, remember mm-hmm. to order it. Because sometimes when you order it, it takes one, two, three, four. I don't know. However, I don't know where you live. So I don't know how long it's going to take to get to your house. But sometimes there will be that lag time that you don't want, especially with the joint stuff. Actually, pretty much with all the stuff. So you get on the subscription. Boom. You get mm-hmm. it reliably. Boom, boom. Free shipping, by the sure. way. On that one. Also, Origin USA. Oh,
0: well, yeah. You're going to want to get on that.
2: Yep. You want some American-made stuff, especially the denim and the boots. And then again, I guess you know, it depends on what you're like, what you're into.
0: Well, denim and boots aren't going to do you any good if you're looking to train... Jiu jitsu,
2: yep, but boom, we got some gi- <laughs> uh geese, American made the riff gi, by the way. we well, talking about the riff gi, mm. but that's one that's like depends on who you are, but you can sleep in that thing like pajamas
0: for sure. If we made a long one, like a long jacket, you could be straight up in a robe, <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're right? You'd be straight yeah. up in a robe, bro. yeah. I might even exercise my right to wear that robe too from time to time, looks yeah. good. But yeah, a lot of good stuff. All made in America. Yeah, Like from, from the beginnings of the materials, probably even from the thoughts of the beginnings of the materials, all made in America. So yeah, <laughs> you want to support an American economy. Yes. One of the ways right well, you
0: want. And you do want to support the American economy. Yes, sir. You do want to do that. Yeah, it's
2: true. Again, originusa.com. If you like something on there, yeah, get something. You support a, you support a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Also, speeding a, speaking of supporting a lot, Jocko's store it's called Jocko's store. You're going to represent, support yourself, support the cause, support the path, represent on the path. Get a shirt, get a jacket, get a hat, something like this. Mm-hmm. We have a subscription situation too called the Shirt Locker. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in creative, artistic, yet representative designs, <laughs> Shirt Locker's for you. Good feedback on that one, I'm telling you. But yeah, look into that one, Jocko
0: store. If you're subscribing to stuff, subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to Jocko Unraveling with Daryl Cooper. Grounded podcast, Warrior Kid podcast. Also, you can subscribe. Is that the right word for the underground? Yes. Jockounderground.com. You can subscribe, sure, but more importantly, you can support Mm -hmm. a methodology that we can turn to should there be problems. What kind of problems? Banning shadow banning, censorship, those kind of things. We're we're not saying that that's gonna happen, but what kind of preparation would it be if we didn't have a contingency scenario? So we got that, uh, com. It costs $8.18 a month if you wanna be a part of that. We do another little podcast called Jocko Underground yeah. where we talk about different topics, we answer your questions, we bring up some adjacent things.
2: Complin. Com- what Complementary. What's the word that? What do you contemplate? Contemplate. Contemplation. Right? Yeah. No contemplative. If. Okay. Thoughts of Jockos. That's what I've kind of uh, discerned from it. You'd be like, "Hey, I was thinking about this," yes. and you're like, yes. "This is this." It gives me, this, me a little this. outlet. This. Yeah, yeah, a little yeah.
0: Outlet for a little deeper dive in a various subjects. Little discussions. Yeah. 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 Some
2: good Q and A on that one too.
0: So there you go. We also have a YouTube channel where we put up the videos of this podcast. We've been putting up the Unraveling Podcast, yeah. slowly but surely. Yeah, Method, um, Methodology. Maybe some more of those could get up there. You yeah. Know, if, we, if we are not too busy. We're working hard on that one,
2: <laughs> for sure.
0: <laughs> uh, some uh, other clips that Echo Charles puts together. What do you think, Dave? What's your favorite uh, Jocko podcast YouTube channel video? <laughs> Dude
2: not the one of him talking trash to me i'm
1: assuming i think the framing one's my favorite one uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait was that on
2: youtube
0: yeah i think so for sure framing yeah, up yeah the
2: framing up yeah yeah
0: wait do you think it's just on uh
2: the ground?
1: no it's no yeah the on longer YouTube.
2: the longer ones are on youtube yeah yeah, yeah, yeah you're uh, right you're right you're right uh, if frame. you want to see okay. so what's
0: that called behind the scenes yeah which Every is basically while, me talking on. shit yes yeah hard you are hard deserved uh, well, many cases, you know, S- not always. Sometimes maybe, go a little too hard. Maybe
2: your black guy is deserved. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> also, d- speaking of YouTube uh, uh, channels, your Origin USA, they have a good YouTube mm-hmm. channel. Origin HD. You want to see how the inner workings yeah. of an American factory resurrected yeah. manufacturing? By the way, you want to see how that works, man? That's a good. That's a good outlet, right? American
0: there. factories. We got multiple factories now. Yeah. We're growing. Yeah. We're go- We're bringing back manufacturing to America. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a good
2: one. Also, Psychological Warfare is an album with tracks, Jocko tracks of him telling you how to get through moments of weakness. These are weaknesses that I experience, literally I experience. I told Jocko, make this little thing. It's recording. You listen to it, boom. No more moment of weakness. A moment of strength, really, mm-hmm. at the end of the
0: day. Flipside Canvas, if you want something to hang on your wall that's cool, Dakota Meyer is making it for you. Go to FlipsideCanvas.com. Got a bunch of books you know what they are. Final spin, look, final spin, coming out November 9th. What are you shaking your head at, Dave? I just cannot wait for it to come <laughs> out, I'm just. <laughs> it, it's freaking, it's rad. Um, super stoked on it and looking forward to that coming out. Then everything else you know, leadership strategy and tactics, code evaluation protocol, discipline equals freedom field manual. Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, and four. Mikey and the Dragons, about face by Hackworth. Extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. Echelon Front is our leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership, that's what we do. Leadership is the solution. Go to echelonfront.com if you want details on that. We have live events. We also have an online training academy. Because leadership isn't something you learn in one shot. It's something you have to work on. Just like going to the gym, just like jujitsu. So there's a bunch of courses on there you can take. There's live sessions that we're doing two, three times a week where if you want to ask me a question, you can ask me. If you want to ask Dave a question, you can ask Dave. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com if you want to get involved in that. And also, if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families go star family, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization helping out in so many different ways. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org. And if you want more of my repetitious reciting, or you need more of Echo's unattached assertions, or Dave's exploratory explanations. (laughs) You can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on the Gram, on Facebook, Dave is at David R. Burke, Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink, and thanks to everyone out there in the armed services who step up and execute and get the job done even when leadership is lacking. And also thanks to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders. Thank you for standing duty here on the home front and keeping us all safe and everyone else out there. There's a common theme in this book that, like I said, it's really not in this book, and that is a failure to detach and as we read these blunders and errors and catastrophes, it's so easy to see these mistakes being made. But they're not obvious to the people that are caught up in making these mistakes. They can't see the tactical errors. They can't see their emotions. They can't see their ego. And it wrecks them. And it causes these disasters so don't allow that to happen to you the worst mistakes we make are the ones we don't see and we don't see them because we're too close so step back detach see what you're supposed to see and that will allow you to do what you are supposed to do and until next time this is Dave and Echo and Jocko out